I'll invite you now to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis 34. Before we stand and read, so don't stand yet, before we stand and read, let me introduce this to you. Because Genesis 34 is a unique chapter. It is a chapter that reminds us of the presence of evil and that the presence of evil is still very strong in our world. This chapter is a deep valley between two mountaintops. Previous to this chapter, we saw Jacob wrestle with the Lord as he returns to the promised land, restored after decades to his relationship with his brother. In the chapters that follow, we will see the concluding promise of God to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as the promise is once again reiterated to Jacob. But here, in between, there is great evil. Now, parents, I recognize there are numerous children in the room. I hope I always am tactful in how I present the events of Scripture. But the events of Scripture are not always G-rated, and this is one of those moments. I hope to be both tactful but also clear about this passage. In a moment, we're going to stand and read, and I'm going to read the passage in its entirety, even though it is 31 verses. And I want you to listen for a few things. You'll notice as I read, there is no good guy. There is no redemption. There is no mention of the Lord at all. The only mention of the promise of God is in a perverse and deceptive way. This is a story of pure evil intended to show us as readers that evil was prevalent in Canaan, but also prevalent among the sons of Jacob. And this is God's word, and we should be instructed from it. So would you stand with me as I read this text and listen for those things. Beginning in verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the son of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Give, uh, please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her, uh, to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me a great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Then the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully say, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. 
But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, and the young men did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us become, become one, to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem and every male was circumcised all who went out of the city, the gate of the city. And on the third day, when they were sore, Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their sword and came, and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem and with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in their house, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Well, my numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Let's pray together. Father, we begin this morning by praying together for church plants, church planters, young congregations, Mercy Ministries, supported by the North American Mission Board, our chaplains who serve so faithfully amongst our military who are placed there by the North American Mission Board. God, would we give generously to those ministries, many of which we will never encounter or even know about, so the gospel can be proclaimed in our land. Father, as we turn now to your word, let us recognize that even in this great despair and sin and evil, this is your word with a clear intention to show us the depravity of man. Let us not get lost in the depression of this event, but remember that we know the whole story and that Jesus overcomes evil. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As you listen to that story unfold, here's what I want to begin with. We must know that every moment of that story is evil. There are moments there you may read that passage and hope to excuse one action or another that you may identify with someone in that text and think, well, maybe they're right for doing what they did. Know this, there is no right. This is not an event where we are going to look and see how ungodly people acted rightly. And it is not an event where we're going to see the sons of Jacob, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob act godly either. The intent of this passage, sandwiched between these two mountaintops experiences, is to show us the great sin that existed in the land and in God's people. It begins with the instruction that the people of God are not immune to evil. In the beginning of this passage, 
Shechem, a man of the land, the son of the prince of the land, rapes Dinah. This verse, verse tells us something that some have misinterpreted, that Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. There have been those that have preached this text or read this text, sought to interpret this text and place at least part of the blame on Dinah. They would say something like, well, if she had just stayed home, she wouldn't have been exposed to this evil. If Dinah hadn't gone out to be amongst the women of the land, but had just remained amongst the women of Jacob's house, then she would have never been raped by this young man. That's a story that people still take today. Unfortunately, in our culture, we have a tendency to blame victims for their victimization. Dinah is not to blame. When we read that she went out to be amongst the, went to see the women of the land, here is what the intent of the passage is. She's old enough to leave the house. That's all you need to read. Don't read anything into it that's not there. She's old enough to leave the house. As young women grew in ancient times, they stayed home. They helped their mothers. When they had stopped growing, that meant they became of marrying age. Dinah is now of marrying age. She would have likely been in her teen years. She'd been of marrying age in that day, and they were allowed to go and have friends. And that's what she does. She's simply going to visit other women. But then evil happens to her. Shechem, the son of Hamar the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her. Make no mistake, this is rape. Saw, seized, and lay mirrors the same language that we see in multiple other places in Genesis. First in Genesis 3, where Eve saw the fruit of the tree, took the fruit of the tree, and ate the fruit of the tree. Moses, the author of Genesis, uses that language intentionally every time he uses that pattern. Saw, took, ate, whatever the sin is, saw, seized, lay, as he does here, he uses it intentionally to show us the sinful nature of the act that has been committed. He even adds a fourth phrase here, and that is that he humiliated her that this is an act of sexual violence against Dinah. We're told in verse three that his soul was drawn to Dinah, that he loved the young woman, that he spoke tenderly to her, and he even goes to Hamor, his father, and asks for the girl's hand in marriage. None of those things excuse this man's actions. His quote-unquote love for her in verse three does not make this situation better. His, what the Bible says, tender words for her, literally means he spoke to her heart. He tried to make it better. This is what, see what's happening here. This man has committed this egregious sin against this woman, and now he's trying to sweet talk her, right? He knows he's done something wrong. Now he's trying to sweet talk her. And those sweet words aren't going to change the fact that he has humiliated her his desire to make it right, to go to his father and say, get this woman to be my bride, does not remove one ounce of guilt from this man. So as we read this and we see this first of several acts of evil that take place in this passage, what are we to believe? 
we must recognize that evil will happen to God's people. You and I are not immune to evil simply because we name Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are not immune to evil because we find ourselves amongst the people of God. We don't have some sort of eternal protection against temporal evil. We have eternal protection against the results of evil in our own life in our salvation found in Jesus Christ. But the Bible does not promise you that bad things aren't going to happen in this life. It's actually the opposite. The more closely we walk with Jesus, the more at odds we become with the world and the more the world may seek to do us evil as Shechem saw to do against Dinah here. We are not promised temporal protection from all evil. And here in this first event, after decades of being gone from the promised land, Jacob returns with his family and immediately encounters the evil within the land. Evil happens in their midst. Second, Jacob is silent concerning the evil committed against his daughter, but her brothers are angry. We're going to see competing reactions, one from Jacob, one from her brothers. Jacob hears about the defiling of his daughter in verse five, and his sons were told are out manning the livestock in the field, and then Jacob does something that may seem just completely foreign to dads in this room, particularly dads of daughters. He held his peace. Now, I have two sons, so I can't speak as a father of a daughter, but I can just imagine that I would not hold my peace in this moment. And we need to recognize that Jacob shouldn't either. Jacob's response is an evil response. Jacob's response, I believe we can read from this text, is a response at least that was unloving because of who Dinah's mother was. We've already seen that Jacob has two wives and two handmaids through which he's had children. He has four women by which he has had his current 11 sons and the one daughter that was named for us. But only one of those women he loved. Jacob does not love Leah. And it seems as if he also does not love the children of Leah and the daughter that Leah has given him because this man is willing to just hold his peace God's people will be faced with a choice of how we will confront evil and our option is not to just remain silent as Jacob does. His sons at least initially respond in a way that makes sense to us. We're told that the sons of Jacob in verse seven come in from the field and they heard this and look, they were indignant and very angry. Now we're going to find that the most angry of them are the ones who are whole brothers of Dinah that these are the children who share the same mother and father, that, those, that it seems as if all of the brothers are mad, we're going to see some are a little more mad than others. They were indignant and very angry. Evil should make us angry. The initial response upon hearing of this sexual abuse of their sister is anger, it's indignation. And that is outrage that is rightly placed. We as followers of God should call evil what it is. We should confront evil with the truth. Evil should make us mad. We can't be Jacob. We can't be passive. 
We can't just sit on our hands and say, well, evil, you know, evil people are going to do what evil people do. We're not given that option in Scripture. And so the initial response is understandable. They're angry. They're indignant. And then we're told by a, by a note of the author here, they were angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done. Now, it's, it's interesting to note just quickly that Israel doesn't exist yet. <laughs> this is certainly a narrator's note, but the narrator being Moses writing this during the time of the Exodus is also writing during a time that what? Israel doesn't exist yet. They are, this is, this is happening amongst the, the, the sons of Jacob who would later go to Egypt. Their descendants would grow up in Egypt. They would eventually be freed from Egypt and go back to the promised land. And yet here in this story and in the writing of it, the land is referred to as Israel and said, this kind of thing should not happen. This must not be done in Israel. This is Moses communicating to us that the promise of God is sure. That even though this land was still very much Canaan, in their minds, it was Israel. This is the promised land of God and evil has no place in it. So Jacob on one hand is silent, on the other, his sons are angry. And then the Canaanites, Shechem and Hamor attempt to exploit this evil for their good. Look at verse eight, but Hamor spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to me, to give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us, give us your daughter to us. And Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to Jacob and to to his brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you ask, I'll give you. Here's here's what Shechem and Hamar do. They are attempting to take this wrong and not apologize for it. They're not trying to make it better. Well, they're trying to make it better, but they're not trying to make it better in the right way. There's no, there's no restitution. There's no attempt to apology. There's no recognition of wrong. This has become a business negotiation. The world will often attempt to turn evil into good. Now, when we get to the very end of Genesis, at the end of June, the last sermon that I'm gonna preach in this year-long series is going to be focused on the fact that what, God, what man intends for evil, God intends for good. We're going to see that in the life of Joseph with his evil brothers. But it is only God who can do that. God is the one who takes what was meant for evil and turned into good. And one of the meta narratives of the story of Genesis is man striving to be like God. We see it in the garden where Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden tree because they wanted to be like God. We see it in Uh, later in Genesis when they build the Tower of Babel. Why do they build the Tower of Babel? So that they can be like God in the heavens. One of the stories of Genesis is man's desire to replace God. And this is what Hamor and Shechem are attempting to do here. Only God can take evil and turn it into good. But these men think they can negotiate their way out of it. They think we can fix this. Not apologize for it. Not give restitution for it with zero care with what Dinah thinks. You'll notice Dinah's never quoted in this. Nobody ever asks her what she thinks. It doesn't even seem like anybody cares what she thinks. This has become a let's fix this situation. 
And so they look out and they see that there's an opportunity for them to benefit. And because there's an opportunity for them to benefit, they say, you just tell us what the price is. Give us a bride price and it's gonna be steep. You give us the bride price and we'll, we'll make do. We'll, cause think about what's going on in their minds. This is just set up this next section for a moment. Jacob, who left the promised land with nothing but his staff, we were told in the previous section, is now returned and his, his, his possessions are so big, he's gotta have two camps, right? And he tried to give a lot of it away to his brother and his brother wouldn't take it. So he still has all this stuff, right? Coming, coming into Canaan from Mesopotamia, he's got all this stuff and it's camped outside these people's gates. What do you think they want? Why do you think they wanna marry their daughters and have Jacob's sons marry their daughters? It's because of the stuff. <laughs> they, they see this as a great opportunity. There's a lot of greed happening here and greed is another evil contained within this passage and it is going to ultimately be their deaths. Second section shows us the evil of responding to evil with more evil. The sons of Jacob deceived the Hivites and abused God's covenantal sign. Verse 13 is the key to understanding everything else that happens in this passage. If we miss verse 13, we begin to make excuses for what the sons of Jacob do. If we rightly understand verse 13, we rightly understand everything else is evil. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. There is no intention for them to speak truthfully. They are going to be deceitful. The sons of Jacob, again, Jacob's not, Jacob's just sitting there. But the sons of Jacob are going to be what? What Jacob used to be. Remember the name Jacob, if you've been here the last few weeks, means deceiver, the heel grabber, the one for all of his life up until this point, deceived his brother, deceived his father, deceived his father-in-law. This man schemed his entire life. And guess what? The apple did not fall very far from the tree. And his sons have now become what he was. And they are going to answer this first story that shows the actions of the 12 tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob. The first story, they act exactly as their father did, deceitfully. So we cannot see any of their actions after verse 13 as righteous. We can't see any of their actions after verse 13 as good because the biblical author has intentionally shown us these guys are being deceitful. This is the key. Verse 14, they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only this condition, we will agree with you that you will become as we are every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we'll take our daughter and we will be gone. They didn't, they didn't say we'll go to go to war. They're gonna say, here's the bride price. Every, every man, old, middle-aged, young, doesn't matter. Every man in your city amongst your people group must be circumcised. It's a great price that they're going to ask for them. They're attempting to barter with the covenantal sign of God. So far, the evil that we've seen in this passage from Jacob and his family have been passive evil. That changes here. This deception on their part to lie to these men, to get them to do something that was not their place to get them to do. 
It's active evil in the lives of the sons of Jacob. Just, I want us to go back momentarily to Genesis 17, where God establishes the covenantal sign of circumcision. I want you to hear the beauty of that language and how these boys are abusing it. In Genesis 17, we read, and this is God speaking, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you through their generation for everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant and you, shall, and you and your offspring after you through their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. God makes this beautiful promise to Abraham and says, it's not based off of what you do, Abraham. I'm going to give to you and to the generations after you this land. You're not going to have to fight for it. You're not going to have to scheme for it. You're not going to have to deceive for it. I'm going to give it to you, Abraham. All you need to do is have this outward sign of our eternal covenant, circumcision. <laughs> and the great-grandchildren of Abraham are willing to scheme and deceive and barter away that outward sign so that they can get the justice, the vengeance that they think is right. This is a great perversion of the sign of God's covenant. And their deception works. Their deception works. You would think these two men would have said, wait a second. You want us to go back and tell everybody they have to do what? I don't, I'm not really sure. But we're told they do go back. They go back to the city gates and they pitch this idea, right? Says it pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. Oh, I didn't tell you this at the beginning. Hamor, the guy who's ruling everything, that's the Hebrew word for donkey. I mean, it's not like the Hebrew word for donkey. It is the Hebrew word for donkey, Okay. The man's making a donkey out of himself, okay? And, and that's in, I believe that's intentional. I think we're supposed to read donkey. Right? The words pleased Hamor, the donkey, and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he's the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the city gate and spoke to the men of their city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let's give our, to them our daughters. Only on this condition will these men agree if we become circumcised as they are. Look at verse 23, it's a help. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree to do this. Here's what they say. Guys, if we'll have this little bit of surgery, we get everything. All that stuff parked outside the camp. This is what intermarriage does, right? It makes what's yours, mine, and mine yours. It says all that's, we just gotta do this. And they agree to it. <laughs> they agree to it. They all agreed to become circumcised because of their greed, driven by the desire to have what God has given to Jacob as their own. They enter into a sign that was not theirs. Circumcision was the eternal sign of the covenant and these men are willing to do it for mere temporal gain. But then... The deception of Simeon and Levi is fully played out as they murder the Hivites and the sons of Jacob plunder the city. Verse 25 tells us on the third day, don't miss that. In a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate 
the greatest good that ever happened when evil was overcome on the third day. But here, on this third day, evil is going to reign in this city. And on the third day when they were sore, you can understand that, two of the brothers of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, these are the blood brothers of Dinah, the children of Leah, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came up to the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field and all the wealth and all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. While some throughout history have attempted to excuse the action of Dinah's brothers, we must understand clearly this is murder. A great egregious sin took place at the beginning of this text and a great egregious sin has taken place here at the end of it. They answered a great evil with another evil. Simeon and Levi kill the men of this city. We're not told how they do it, but we're told they do it. And then some at least of the brothers of Jacob, some of the brothers of Jacob may have been, or sons of Jacob may have been too young to participate in this. We're told that uh, Jacob leaves immediately after Joseph's born. So Joseph wouldn't be a part of this. Maybe some of the others wouldn't, but some at least of their brothers join in and plunder this city, all of the wealth. They capture children and women, all that was in the house, captured and plundered. You may say, wait, I kind of identify with Simeon and Levi here. You see, Pastor, you don't have little girls in your house. If you had little girls in your house, you'd understand what, what, these, what these boys do. Shouldn't we support what these boys do? Absolutely not. And when we get to Genesis 49, you're going to see that this sin is, they are held accountable for this sin. The scriptures make it very clear. And ultimately, the descendants of Simeon and Levi have no land to call their own in Israel because of this event. This event is held these, these boys are held responsible for this egregious act of evil there amongst the Hivites. Finally, Jacob's concern is for his own well-being and not the evil in his midst. We see that Father Jacob sitting on his hands at the beginning of this, and he finally speaks. He finally gets angry, but he's not angry at the right thing. Verse 30, then, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink in the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and, me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Of all of the endings to all of the stories being told in Genesis, this is probably the one that is the most disappointing to me. The only immediate rebuke of Jacob is of his son's, self, is of his sons from a self-centered point of view. He does not seem to care that his sons have just completely eliminated an entire people group from the face of the planet. He still has offered no consolation to his daughter who has been raped at the beginning of the story. His only concern is that he will be outnumbered by the kinsmen, the other Canaanites in the land who will come against him and kill him and his household. And their boy's response is equally as disappointing. There is no recognition of their sin. There is no repentance. There is no sorrow. There is only justification. 
We did evil because they deserved evil to be done against them. Hear me, church. The answer for evil in our world is not more evil. So what? We must be willing to confront temporal evil with God-honoring words and actions. Now, you'll notice in your notes, I have two points of application today. I normally try to only do one, but I have two today. One that deals with our actions and the other that is more doctrinal. And this first one with actions is speaking into our lives because we see and experience evil in our world. And a passage like this begs the question, what are we supposed to do about it? If we're not supposed to do what Simeon and Levi do, if we're not supposed to do what Jacob does, if the answer isn't sit on your hands and just let evil rage around you, but it's also not deceive and pick up your sword and go kill everybody, what are we supposed to do? New Testament helps us here. Ephesians chapter five tells us this, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the, of the things that they do in secrets. Christians cannot look the other way when confronted by evil in our world. And this is what Paul is saying. If you'll remember about this time last year, I was finishing our sermon series through Ephesians. And when we got to Ephesians 5, Paul gives this list of sins that were prevalent in the idolatrous worship of the uh, citizens of Ephesus. And they were embracing evil, not only in their idolatry, but they were embracing evil in their practice of idolatry. It was rampant sexual immorality and other sins that were taking place in those temples. And Paul warns them. He's like, this is evil. You cannot have anything to do with this. Don't even let this be named among you, but you also can't sit idly by. Take no part in it but expose it. Elsewhere in Ephesians, Paul says to speak the truth in love. So what do Christians do? Christians don't emulate Jacob and just sit by passively. They don't emulate Jacob and only look and say, well, how is this going to affect me? We need to call evil, evil. We need to call sin, sin. Now we do so lovingly. We do so in a way that is guided by scripture We do so in a way that is not only guided, but influenced by scripture, that we're making sure that we call what is evil, making sure it actually is evil. Because unfortunately, the church at times throughout history has called things evil that weren't actually evil. We need to be guided and instructed by the word of God in what we name to be evil in our world. So we can't just be passive, but we're also not to do the, extre- the other extreme, and that's take up the sword. We're not supposed to do what Dinah's brothers do. There's another New Testament passage that gives us instruction on our actions. Our actions are found in Romans 12. Paul there writes, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the only way, let me start at the end The only way we overcome evil with good is because of the change that has happened in our lives. This is not some kind of works-based salvation. 
The good that is within us comes because Jesus has given us his righteousness, making us able to walk in him, which is good. But notice what Paul's instructions are. It's not that we act spitefully. It's not that we act with revenge or with vengeance, but that we actually act towards our enemies with good. That if they're hungry, we feed them. If they're thirsty, we give them something to drink that we operate as followers of Jesus in a fallen world, calling sin what it is, evil, an egregious affront to the holiness of God, while loving people and meeting people's needs and showing them the love and forgiveness of Christ that he so richly showed to us. So our actions here, are loving while our words are truthful. Number two, the doctrinal application. Jesus conquered evil in our place and is the only eternal solution to the problem of evil in our lives and in the world. The answer to Dinah's rape is Jesus. The answer to the parasite genocide brought about at the hands of Jacob's son is Jesus. The answer to the massacre in Atlanta this week of those massage workers is Jesus. The answer to all evil for all time is Jesus. He is the one who has conquered evil in our world. He is the only solution, not a solution. He is the only solution to the problem of evil that we face in our lives and is so prevalent in this world. Listen to Colossians chapter two, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jacob's sons picking up that sword, using those deceitful words to plot and plan their scheme was not needed because God is the one. Through Jesus alone who conquers sin and death and evil in our world, he is the one who has triumphed over rulers and authorities. He is the one who puts the doers, the workers of evil to shame in this world. He and he alone is the one who triumphs. And hear me clearly, if you're in Christ today, it is because he conquered evil in your life. It is because he took you from being dead, Paul says, in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh and made you alive together with him. It is in him alone that we can stand against evil because without him, we are evil. There's no righteousness in us apart from Christ. Without him, we are the evil in this world. But God has taken us out of that and given us a new name and a new heart and a new purpose and has brought us into his life and light. So hear me, if that's not you today, if you've never come to faith in Jesus and you're still battling evil, know this, you will spend the rest of your life battling evil temporally and will one day, after your death, go to a place where you 
permanently, for all eternity, pay the price for your sin, for the evil that you did, according to the righteous judgment of God, eternally separated from him forever. But there's hope to be found in Jesus because he has made a way for you alone, conquering evil in your place, not helping you do it, but doing it for you that if you will come to him in faith and repentance, he will take you out of that evil self and will put you, make you alive with him. That is a free offer of the gospel today that if you will believe it, you will be saved. Oh, hear me, friend. You can strive and struggle for your own vengeance and what you think is right in this world or you can trust Jesus who makes all things right. Let's pray together. Father, let us not emulate Jacob. Let us not emulate his son. Let us emulate Jesus, who called evil evil, but did good in the face of it. Let your church be marked by that, we pray. We ask also, God, that those who are still striving against evil in their lives, thinking they can overcome it on their own, would they come to the end of themselves and turn towards Christ and forgiveness, we ask now in Christ's name. Amen.